what's the time? It's time to get ill. Now what's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Now what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, we're in episode uh, 120-something of the podcast, not entirely sure which one, uh, but no, not a new podcast anymore. But for those of you tuning in for the first time, basically what we try to do here on the podcast is uh, basically I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published on uh, on a topic or a person or a thing or an idea uh, that uh, we think would be of interest to you, the listener, and then uh, hopefully at the uh, end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast if you get your druthers about you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read so if you like this podcast please consider giving illiteracy a five-star review at apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show and also by sharing with your friends that's the uh, best way to support programming like this and my guest today uh once again a returning guest coming back uh for the fourth time on the podcast the new record holder he's uh, in the lead now the fourth time is <laughs> Dr. Jonathan White, and uh, Dr. White is Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University. He is also the author of 13 books, three of which he has previously guested on the show for, as I mentioned earlier. Those books are To Address You as My Friend, African Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln, uh, A House Built by Slaves, African American Visitors to the Lincoln White House, which uh, won him the Gilder Lerman Prize, Lincoln Prize for 2022, which is awarded annually for the finest scholarly work in English on Abraham Lincoln, the American Civil War soldier, or the American Civil War era. And that's a pretty big deal, so hats off to him again for that. And the uh, third time he was on here uh, was a book that uh, came out a couple months ago um, that if you are a dedicated listener, you will have already heard that one. It's uh, called uh, Shipwrecked, A True Civil War Story, Mutinies, Jailbreaks, Blockade Running, and the Slave Trade. And he is back uh, this time for a work he co-edited along with Brian Matthew Jordan. Uh, it's a new volume from the University of Georgia Press. Boo, go Gators. Nothing personal, but, you know, University of Florida. So I got to boo Georgia whenever I hear it. And that book is entitled Final Resting Places, Reflections on the Meaning of Civil War Graves. And like I said, it was just published uh couple days ago we're recording this on labor day i think it came out uh the first of september so a few days ago and uh so like i said this is the book we'll be discussing today so uh dr white thank you uh, very very much again for coming back once more for the fourth time on the podcast thanks for having me so i guess now i'm ahead of hw brands at least for a little while yeah yeah uh, at least in, <laughs> yeah, for uh yeah until uh he uh, until he retakes pole positions <laughs> with his next spurt of writing. Uh, yeah, so uh, again, a little different um, than our normal uh, talks just because, um, again, this is an edited volume, not uh, uh, something uh, outside of the introduction that you were, you know, the, uh, the principal author. Um, but uh, I guess, you know, normal first question we normally do here. Uh, it's just basically what, uh, how did, uh, well, first of all, tell us about your co-editor, uh, Brian Matthew Jordan, and how did this project develop 
uh, what was the genesis of it? Uh, whose idea was it? And uh, how did you guys decide to collaborate and, and all that stuff? Yeah, so Brian is a professor of history at Sam Houston State University down in Texas. And he and I have known each other for a while. We met through a mutual friend, Alan Gelzo, and Brian had studied with him at Gettysburg College, then went to study with David Blight at Yale. And he was actually a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his his book called Marching Home, which is about veterans mm -hmm. after the Civil War. And Brian's a just wonderful scholar and a brilliant writer. And he and I were at the Society of Civil War Historians Conference in Pittsburgh. I think it was in 2018 that it was in Pittsburgh. And we get, decided to get breakfast one morning. And we were sitting at this you know, restaurant at the hotel talking about all sorts of things. And I told him, you know, I've got this idea to do a book on grave sites during the Civil War and to ask a number of prominent scholars to each pick a grave that's of meaning to them and to write a reflective essay. So we weren't looking for scholarly, historiographical type essays that were really analytical. We were looking for personalized stories where you get to really see the historian interacting with the grave site. And so we sketched it out. Our, and he said, that's a great idea. We should do that. And so we sat down at this breakfast and we took out a napkin and just wrote a lot of notes down. And then we started going around the conference asking people. And we probably lined up half the contributors just there just saying, hey, we've got this idea. Do you want to be a part of it? And people were really excited about it. And the thing that's kind of cool for me, I mean, it's a beautifully illustrated book full mm -hmm. color and everything. And it's not 28 headstones. Each grave site is different from the others. Some of them are unmarked. Some of them are underwater. Like there's all these different kind of places. And each one not only tells a story of the person who lived and died and how they were commemorated by their loved ones, but then it also weaves in a story of a historian who has found this place or this person and found them captivating. Yeah, as you said, it's a it's a very very pretty uh, volume. Uh, like you said, uh, completely fully illustrated. Uh, many um, interesting, uh, thought provoking pictures of these uh, of these great sites and uh, people and just uh, places uh, around the country and uh, not even entirely in the country. It's <laughs> not as far afield as Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a uh, yeah, like as you mentioned, it's very, very, uh, uh, it's a very handsome book. We'll put it that way. Um, but um, the book does have um, some, a couple themes, and you uh, list them in the introduction. The introductory essay are two major themes, especially that the the first theme being the power of place, and then the second theme is that the the Civil War graves have served as a as a prism for you know sort of each successive generation uh through which they have viewed and understood that war understood that conflict can you uh, expand on those two themes what you're uh, what you meant there what you're talking about there yeah and i'll start with the second one you know it's it's interesting i was one of these kids who grew up kind of fascinated by graveyards and cemeteries and i was <laughs> me too actually yeah i would love to go to visit them i remember once when i was probably in high school or college i visited my sister 
and she lives in New England. And we went to Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And for her, it was kind of weird and uncomfortable to go to this beautiful rural cemetery. And for me, though, I remember walking through saying, I know that person. Oh, I know him. Mm -hmm. I know her. And it was really a cool experience to be able to see all these places and, and realize where their final for a lot of very famous, prominent people, where their final resting place was and to be able to go and kind of pay your respects to them. And that's what grave sites have been and are. In the 19th century, when people were buried, their burial was really something that, you know, it was this final departure from this earth and for the family to say goodbye when they're, when someone is finally buried. But a lot of times these burial places carry special meaning, political meaning in that moment or meaning that changes over time. So one of the graves we talk about in the introduction is in rural Pennsylvania, and it's a guy named uh, James Stewart Robinson, who had been killed hunting down deserters in central Pennsylvania. And he, a, a deserter actually shot and killed him. And when he was buried, they, t they put on his grave that he was killed by a rebel sympathizer. And so, and it became known as this thing called the Fishing Creek Confederacy, where they believed there were Confederates in central Pennsylvania trying to undermine the Union. And so his grave site became a, a focal point of debates over the meaning of loyalty in the North during the Civil War. You know, the, one of the ones that we wrote about in the introduction that we had to change several times was A.P. Hill's grave. And that's because these grave sites sometimes change themselves. And, um, you know, A.P. Hill was buried in a public street in Richmond. And then after the murder of George Floyd and the monument started to come down, the question became, what do you do with A.P. Hill's grave? Because it's not only a monument in a public place, but it's actually a burial place. And that led to a court decision that was finally litigated and decided about a year ago. And so as our book was progressing, we were having to revise it and talk about, you know, change. What's what's the current status of A.P. Hill's grave? And, and you know, things changed even after the book was finalized. Same thing with Alan Gelzo's essay mm -hmm. on Robert E. Lee's grave. That has changed. And Traveler's grave, his horse, has changed at Washington and Lee University in the last month. And way too late to change it in the book. But it, these kind of examples give you a sense of how these grave sites are places that that have great meaning, not only for the people who buried their loved ones there, but also for people who today fight over what did the war mean and how should we remember it? And then uh, that issue of the, you know, these graves are places. I, I guess I kind of talked about that already with my own experiences about going to places. When you when you go to these spaces, you you can really reflect on different aspects of the war. And it's different when you go there and you see the space than even just reading about it. Our hope is that by having such a beautifully and lavishly illustrated book that it'll draw readers into the place. And the illustrations are a real mix. We have some that are from the 1860s or 70s or some that are from the early 1900s. And then we hired a number of modern photographers to also capture modern photographs. And so the reader gets this sense of place and also how places change over time. Yeah. Um want to talk about the the whole confederate grave thing a little bit later but uh, yeah I'm, I'm sort of the yeah exactly the same way with you like i <laughs> uh, let's say if i if i enjoy 
going to the cemeteries, but I find it, um, uh, I don't say intriguing, I guess is the word. Um, yeah, I remember when I was, I guess it all started when I was a little kid, uh, cause my dad worked in, in lower Manhattan. And, uh, so, you know, uh, often my mother and I would, you know, uh, go into the city and, uh, you know, meet them for at work after dinner and then for dinner and then go to a, you know, a play or something like that. But, um, you know, we'd always walk past, uh, Trinity church mm -hmm. on Broadway, uh, to get to his office. And, uh, that's where Alexander Hamilton is, uh, buried. And so, uh, among other people, he's not the only one yeah. there in the, in the churchyard. Um, but it was, it's just, uh, it, it just seemed very, uh, like the juxtaposition <laughs> of like this, this little church graveyard in this massive, uh, you know, canyon of, of, uh, of skyscrapers and all the, the, the hustle and bustle of, of lower Manhattan. And then just this, uh, you know, this very small, uh, place. Uh, you couldn't really even call it like peaceful anymore, <laughs> just because there's so much noise. But, uh, but just the fact that there's someone um, that famous was just sitting in like a, you know, little grave in a little churchyard, um, always uh, struck me as something very, um, or it just sort of fired my imagination more so than going to you know Grant's tomb, right, uh, or you know something like that. And um, so yeah, I've always. Uh, like I said, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but, um, anytime, you know, you go to like a, or I went to a, uh, battle site or something or, uh, other civil war site where there is a graveyard, I'd always, you know, take the time to just walk it. And, uh, but just seeing things like, you know, these rows and rows of, um, of headstones that are of, or for unknown, uh, you know, they, they don't know the, yeah. who the person is in there. They might know the, you know, the company or the regiment, uh, or whatever, but, um, you know, and just, just seeing them all lined up and it really, um, it brings home in a way that like the, even the battlefields do not, or, uh, just, uh, um, the immense, uh, suffering and just sacrifice, um, yeah, war. it took the title Final Resting Places from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address for that very reason, that Lincoln, I think, better than anyone else in the American tradition, gives us a reflection on how we should commemorate graves. And you mentioning the headstones made me think instantly of Gettysburg. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gettysburg's probably the most famous one, but, uh, you know, most of the, or I'm sure actually pretty much all of the, like, the major uh, sites, um, you know, have cemeteries of, uh, some degree, whether it's, you know, Stones River or mm -hmm. Chickamauga or Shiloh or whatever. Um, yeah. So, um, actually on that topic, that's a, leads us into, uh, leads me into a good question. How did this, uh, how and why did this national cemetery system, uh, come about after the war? 
Yeah, it actually began during the war and then really continued after the war. It, they, there was an incredible need. I mean, the the estimate for 150 years was that there were 620,000 killed during the Civil War. Now, scholars have used demographic research based in sur- in census records to suggest that between 750 and 850,000 Americans died during the Civil War. I don't know which number is the right one. I don't think we'll ever know. But you had this incredible need to deal with the dead. And a lot of families in the 19th century, what they wanted was to be able to bring their loved ones home and bury them at home in a family plot, in a cemetery, in a churchyard. But that just becomes impossible for most families during the Civil War. I mean, some families continue to do that, but most are not able to do that. And so the solution that they come up with is to do these massive national cemeteries. And one of the things that Lincoln kind of touches on in the Gettysburg Address, you know, for those who here gave their lives that this nation might live, these dead will become part of the memory of the nation. And they are buried in uniform rows with uniform headstones. Everything is the same about the headstones except for the name and the regiment and maybe a religious symbol, but everything else about these headstones is uniform. And it, in a sense, while the nation was fighting for democracy and fighting to prove that democracies can survive and that elections, you know, matter and that, you know, Lincoln was going to say to the South, you can't just take your ball and go home because I lost an election. And Mm -hmm. in fighting to prove that democracy can survive, you have, you have a, democratization of burials. So in the old rural cemeteries of the 1830s and 40s and 50s and so forth, the the gravestones are very ornate, very large or very small, depending on the wealth and the prominence of the person and the family who was doing the burial or being buried. With these national cemeteries, you have everything is democratized. And in a sense, the dead become the property of the nation. They're buried on national cemeteries. They're no longer buried in private plots in cemeteries Mm -hmm. or churchyards. And that movement then takes off. It begins, I mean, very famously with Arlington Cemetery, you have in 1864 with the the killing of John Rogers Meggs, and his father was a very prominent person in the army, Montgomery Meggs, and some. He was a quartermaster Meggs. general, wasn't he? Or? Yeah, he was a general, yeah. and he had been the architect of the Capitol before the war. And mm-hmm. his view is, we're going to punish Robert E. Lee, and we're going to make it so he can no longer live in his home at Arlington. And so they turned Arlington into a national cemetery. A few months before that. You've got the consecration of the national of the soldier cemetery at Gettysburg with Lincoln in November of 63. So you have this movement that takes off and then expands after the war. And you've got a a whole group of people who are hired by the federal government then in the years after the war to try to find and locate and identify the bodies of Union dead initially and then later Confederate dead to be buried in these cemeteries. Yeah, wasn't uh, part of the reason as well that. there was fear of, um, since obviously most of these, or you know, probably 99% of the uh, the burial plots for Union soldiers were in uh, southern states where they, you know, fell in battle. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was um, going to be 
desecration of the graves or or uh, letting these uh, grave sites fall into disrepair. That's right. Uh, by incalcitrant, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, incalcitrant, unreconstructed, uh, you know, rebels. In yeah. The South. And there are a lot of accounts of desecration that take place of grave sites during the Civil War. And so, yeah, that's a big part of the movement is to make sure that these these veterans, these honored dead are really honored when they're so far away from home and to make sure that they are properly marked. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And another interesting thing about the the national cemeteries is that I think all of them are uh integrated uh you know so you have uh the graves of black soldiers lying next to the graves of white soldiers even though the units were um uh obviously segregated uh but um is that true most of the or all of them are are that way i think that would be true now i don't know that that was true originally and part of that is a nature of where the cemeteries were so initially gettysburg is fought entirely by white soldiers and Mm -hmm. so the the dead being buried there would all be white but over time they do become integrated and we do we have an essay by a wonderful historian in your neck of the woods down in florida named barb gannon who wrote an essay about a cemetery she found, a GAR cemetery she found in Elgin, Illinois, that was integrated mm-hmm. early on. And so it was unusual to find that in a veteran cemetery so early. But yeah, now there's the the cemetery. So you go to Arlington, it's immigra- integrated. You go to the cemet- Hampton National Cemetery here where I am integrated as well. In general, um, in this uh, in this immediate post-war period when uh, they're going about doing, setting up all these cemeteries and trying to find, uh, you know, uh, these grave sites and whatnot, how were the graves of black soldiers of the, you know, the U.S. colored troops, how were, how were they treated? Yeah, it's a great question. So the Confederate policy was to not treat them with respect. And the most famous example would be the the 54th Massachusetts. And so mm-hmm. uh, for the listeners who've seen the movie Glory, which came out around 1989, if you have not seen it, it's well worth your time to watch it. And Glory tells the story of the 54th Massachusetts, the first regiment of African-American soldiers raised in the North. One of the things the movie gets wrong is it makes you think that most of these men were former slaves. In reality, the men who fought in the 54th were primarily from the North. Some of them had escaped from slavery earlier in their lives, but they enlisted from different states in the North. And in July of 63, they fight at a place near Charleston called Battery Wagner. And we've got an essay on this in the book by a guy mm-hmm. named Doug Edgerton. And they fight in this in this battle and they lose but the the fight itself does a lot to change northern views of black soldiers. They see and read about that these black men are willing to fight with with bravery and for glory, for honor and for the nation. And but from the Confederate perspective, these are just slaves in insurrection. If they get killed, they should just be buried in a ditch. If they are captured, they should be sold into slavery. They shouldn't be treated as POWs. And so after the battle, the Confederates just bury these black men and their white officers in a ditch near the fort, near the ocean. 
And yeah, right on the beach. Right on the beach there. And the white officer, Robert Gould Shaw, is buried with his men. And his parents didn't want his body taken away from the men. Like, from their, they were abolitionists, and they wanted their son's remains to rest with those of his, his black, the black men he had led. Now, enough, at some point, those bodies are exhumed, and then they're taken down to Beaufort, and they're buried in the National Cemetery there in Beaufort, South Carolina. And the front cover of the book is a photograph that one of my students named Chloe Baker took. I took a group of students down to Beaufort and Charleston to see the sites a couple of summers ago, and Chloe got this extraordinary photograph of these trees with the Spanish moss hanging down and mm. row after row after row of unmarked graves. And the unmarked graves there on the front a cover are actually men of the 54th. And it's very, very possible that Robert Gould Shaw is buried under one of those little unmarked headstones and the guys who made that charge are buried there too. So those men initially were given zero respect when the Confederates bury them. But once the Union is able to exhume their bodies, gain control of that area, bring them out and take them to, to Beaufort, they're given proper burial. We'll never know for most of them who is buried where. There are some photos in Doug Edgerton's great, uh, essay of other parts of that cemetery that do show marked graves of men mm -hmm. who maybe were wounded and went back to Beaufort and then died in hospital. And so their graves are marked. But it's really a mix. Some are marked, some are not. And that's true of all Civil War soldiers, white and black, many marked, many unmarked. Yeah, and then uh, Caroline Janney, um, who's a previous guest on this podcast uh, for you uh, loyal listeners, um, she has an essay on the University of Virginia and the Confederate, uh, Confederate soldiers buried there in the, the university cemetery. And... Um, it's, and then it goes, in, <clears throat> excuse me, and then it goes into all the, um, everything that's sort of happened at the university in the last mm. five, six years with the, the uproar about, uh, removing the statue of Robert E. Lee and, uh, uh, and then the, the, um, you know, the rally and the, uh, the white, uh, the white supremacist, and mm. and the counter rally, and and the murder of the of that poor girl, um, and but uh, it also touches on this the uh, uh, this postbellum movement uh, to memorialize Confederate grave sites by these uh, various uh, ladies' memorial associations in the South, and then uh, it's. Uh, as the years go on, these, uh, these grave sites or Southern troops or uh, Confederate troops are sort of, I guess, the, brought into the fold of the of the National Memorial um, uh, movement, and uh, I guess given sort of a, you know uh, equal treatment by the federal government and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about? Um, obviously, you can't talk about her essay. Uh, in her own words, because uh, sure. as you said, these, these essays are very, you know, personal. Uh, but just about the movement uh, uh, with the um, Confederate grave sites, how the the Ladies Memorial Associations uh, came about, um, and indeed, and how indeed they actually were, um, even though they said they were not, they were indeed somewhat of a you know political 
movement and then how the country uh, went forward with the um, as a whole with memorializing uh, the Confederate troops. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about Carrie's essay is, again, just how personal it is. So she did her undergraduate work at the University of Virginia. She then earned her Ph.D. at the University of Virginia, studying under a wonderful historian named Gary W. Gallagher. She then Mm -hmm. went to Purdue University for a while. And then when Gary Gallagher retired, she got his old job back at UVA. And so she's back where she started. And her essay describes how she did research on this Confederate cemetery at UVA's campus when she was an undergraduate many, many years ago. And then she went on to you know, do her PhD and write a book about when she was at Purdue, a book about the, these ladies' memorial associations. And now she's back at UVA and it's all kind of coming to a head with so much of the stuff like you described with the Unite the Right rally in 2017. And then now UVA is commemorating the former slaves who had been there. And so when she was an undergrad, she did this research on how, you know, soldiers who were wounded were cared for, and then ultimately after they died were buried at UVA. And so there was this Confederate cemetery on campus that was well-marked and you know, had memorials in it and so forth. There was also a slave cemetery on campus that did not have the same kind of respect. And one of the things she describes is how in the 19th century, when medical students would need cadavers for gross anatomy classes, they would often go to the slave cemetery and dig up recently deceased people and then use those bodies as the cadavers for how they, uh, for, for learning gross anatomy. And so that was what she did as her undergrad research. And then as a as a scholar, she studied these ladies aid societies and memorial societies that, you know, they were the ones who did the work of remembering the Confederate dead in the years after the Civil War and in in caring for the graves and in and in making sure that they were properly respected. They also then are very important in putting forward the lost cause mythology of the Civil War, the idea that. The South never had a chance to win, that the North was just too strong, that it wasn't really about slavery. They're, at the same time that they're commemorating the Confederate dead, they're also putting forward this sort of Confederate memory of the Civil War. And so they do the bulk of the work or a huge amount of the work of commemorating Confederate dead until the end of the 19th century. And it's at some point that the in the 20th century that the federal government then takes on this work. And this is part of the sort of reconciliation of the North and the South that the the federal government will start treating these Confederate soldiers as U.S. soldiers to an extent that they get a, a federal grave marker. The The Confederate stones are a little bit different from the, the federal U- Union soldier stones. I think they, if memory serves correct, they have a pointed top as opposed to a rounded mm-hmm. top. But Yeah, that's true. And, and what's interesting is one of the men who is responsible for doing that work of finding the Confederate dead and documenting where they are and and giving them a, a better burial is actually the subject of the first essay of the book, a guy named William Oates. And mm. Oates is famous today for being the guy from Alabama who who attacked Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain at Gettysburg on the second day at Little Round Top. And what's less well known is that Oates lost his brother on the, during that charge, his brother John. 
And Glenn W. LaFantasy just wrote this extraordinarily powerful essay Mm -hmm. about what it was like for William Oates for the next 40 years to try to find where his brother's final resting place was. And finally, in the early 20th century, William Oates finds out that his brother's body had been at some point removed from the battlefield at Gettysburg and sent to Richmond and buried in what's known as Gettysburg Hill at Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond. And I don't, my, if my memory serves correct, I don't think that William Oates ever got to visit his brother's grave because he was too old at that point and unable. Yeah, to no, he people. sent, uh, he sent his underling. That's to right. To go it check out it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, so, you know, one of the things I love about this book, even we didn't plan it this way, but the, so many of these essays are connected to one another because the people were connected to each other. So we've got Oates on the one hand, and he's kind of a follow up to some of the other essays uh, in terms of understanding how the grave, the Confederate graves were documented. And then we had Ronald White write about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. So you get both sides yeah. of yeah, the yeah, yeah. story. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe just diverging a bit from the book um this whole and because it's been it's become a whole big issue in the last uh half a decade or so of what i mean beyond the monument thing the confederate monuments uh or at least the ones that don't sit on battlefields the one that are in uh you know public squares or something like that um but there's also you know a lot of calls to, uh, you know, that we shouldn't be, these people shouldn't be more memorialized, period, because they were slave owners and traders and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, they fought for, a, you know, a, a morally disgusting cause and all that stuff. Um, and I guess, I don't know, because uh, I, I haven't been to a Civil War c- uh, cemetery since, like, any of, like, this stuff has come up afresh um but you know it never maybe you know I, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it but it never really bothered me or occurred to me that it was off-putting that there were um you know you'd go to these some of these cemeteries and um you know there would be little um uh, flags on the Confederate gravestones, either the, you know, the, the battle flag of the army of Northern Virginia or the, the, the actual stars and bars, mm-hmm. you know, the, the one that people think is the <laughs> Northern Virginia battle flag, all that sort of thing, or the Bonnie blue flag or something, you know, they'd be decorated. Um, and, or even just the, the monuments to, I mean, like you go to the different battlefields, the, uh, states will have put up, uh, monuments to the, you know, soldiers that died, uh from that state on you know at that battle uh you know whether it's from texas or arkansas or tennessee or virginia or florida or you know georgia troops whoever um so yeah it never but and it still really doesn't bother me like i feel like that that is um I mean, I think it's fine. I think it's, you know, I, I think it's uh, fitting. It with the 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 statues on um, public property or something like that. Like I can, I understand both sides of the argument. Um, 
I don't feel particularly strongly one way or the other. I get, you know, the arguments two and four that, you know, again, these people shouldn't be honored because they're traitors and, uh, you know, <laughs> some of them were completely unrepentant and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, the whole slavery and Jim Crow thing intertwined and, you know, when these monuments were placed and all that and what they were actually meant at the time and, uh, of their, uh, consecration and all that sort of stuff. Um, but at the same time, I, I have, uh, feel sympathy for the people who say, look, well, we're just sort of erasing our history. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and, and just in general, I, I don't like the idea of people just ripping shit down, you know what I mean? Just like of their own, um, or, and it's just something I understand it, but at the same time, and I'm sort of fine with it, you know, but like in Richmond where they're getting rid of, um, all these, uh, statues that you mentioned, AP Hills, uh, you know, that one being a little different, but all these, uh, what's the name of that street where they have all Monument the, uh, Avenue, Monument Avenue. Yeah. Um, I get it. Um, I understand it. I'm, I, I don't really have any, I mean, it, uh, it looked nice. You know, Monument Avenue was very pretty. Um, uh, I don't know what it's going to, I haven't been to Richmond since, um, all this stuff, but, uh, um, I understand it, but, uh, how do you, what is your, I'm um, so I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent one way or the other. Like I, I'm not really sure what is the right and, and the wrong, or if there even is a right and wrong, uh, because it's just, it's the history of it is so nuanced and, um, and, uh, it, it seems at the same time, it seems sort of strange to me that we are becoming more, um, <laughs> uh, more sort of vindictive or, or hostile to, uh, Confederate veterans than the guys who actually like fought against them, you know? Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I don't know what, it, what, how do you feel about all, you know, this, uh, sort of, uh, this movement to, to sort of just, I don't know if erase is the right word, but uh, remove these Confederate symbols from from all sorts of public places. Yeah, so I have a couple thoughts. I mean, my first is I think battlefields and cemeteries should be off limits. Mm -hmm. I think the battlefields, the monuments play a very important educational role in terms of the people who go to the battlefields want to know who was where, what was, where was the center of their line, which is usually where the big monument is. And then where yeah. the flanks, which is usually where there's smaller stones marking those things. And so I am, I'm opposed to taking monuments off of battlefields. And I feel the same way about cemeteries because I think that monuments and cemeteries play a, a different fun. They have a different function than a monument in a courthouse square. I can also, some people have made the case that there's differences between the monuments to Confederate generals and the monuments to Confederate enlisted men, and that they served a different function at different, when they were erected. And so I, I, I see that point as well. Um, ultimately, you know, I think that these things should be decided by local communities in terms of what do they want to have in their public square. And I I don't support vandalism and violence and those sort of things. You know, I I wrote some public articles 
because it, it's not even just about Confederate monuments now. Oh, yeah, it's gone way beyond that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, I wrote, ridiculous, but... you know, in 2020, they there were people who wanted to tear down the Lincoln statue in Washington, D.C., the sure, students yeah. at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, always wanted, you know, there's always people agitating to tear down the Lincoln statue on their campus. I mean, the, there uh, was a statue the, Lincoln erected. The, uh, I'm sorry, the, 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 uh, the relief of the 54th Massachusetts in Boston, wasn't that vandalized? vandalized? Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. Um, they're... There was a statue of Lincoln erected last week in Wisconsin. I believe it was Wisconsin, and it was vandalized within 48 hours of being un- unveiled. So I'm against all of that sort of vandalism and, sure. and just ripping things down. I think that communities, it, it's a it's a public issue, and it's a mm-hmm. and my opinion ultimately doesn't even really matter in a sense. Like what matters is where the people who self-govern in, in their own communities. Um, I do, I understand the arguments on both sides and where monuments are kept in place. I, what I would like to see is more contextual signage that explains who is this person or why was this statue put up where it was so that people can engage with it and understand it. And ultimately I think even though a lot of the monuments were put up for reasons that are not ones we would put monuments up for today, they can be useful for understanding not only the Civil War, but also, as you mentioned, Jim Crow. You know, for the monuments that are put up in the 1920s, those are put up in a very real way to intimidate African Americans, mm-hmm. to give the finger to Union veterans or what have you. And um, a lot of there's plenty of evidence that Union veterans did not want these Confederate statues going up. And and mm-hmm. so if they're up and if they stay up, I think that signs or apps that people can go to and can you know learn about the debates uh, it's, that swirled around the monument going up, I think th- that can be a helpful way to uh, offer historical context. Yeah. How do you feel that uh, just like uh, obviously not in private grave sites, but you know in these in these public cemeteries? Uh, um, you know, like putting like like the little flags mm-hmm. on de- decorating the grave sites with you know the stars and bars or or, or some other uh, Confederate uh, iconography. Um, yeah, I think that right. happens less and less now. I mean, I remember when I was a kid growing up outside of Philadelphia. I remember tramping around a cemetery in Abington, Pennsylvania, and finding a Confederate veteran buried there, and I found mm-hmm. them because there was a Confederate flag. And I went back mm-hmm. there in 2020 or 2021, and now they have a U.S. flag there. And um, so the the church that runs that cemetery very clearly did not want a Confederate flag anymore. I yeah. I know of another church around here that in Newport News where apparently every year the sons of Confederate veterans or daughters of the Confederacy or something come and they mark the graves of the Confederates who were buried in the churchyard. And I was talking to someone who worked at the church about it once, and they said, yeah, we leave them up for a little while, but then we take them down after a couple hours because it's a very diverse church. It's probably, mm-hmm. you know, they have a school there that is probably a quarter or to a third African-American. And so, you know, they, they just don't want those symbols there when they've got all these kids who will be there. Uh, so sure. I understand the impulse of 
the descendants to want to decorate the graves. I also understand the impulse of the people who might run these cemeteries today and say that's not what we want our place associated with anymore. Yeah, and uh, I think probably just putting, you know, the American flag is sufficient <laughs> because they were still all, you know, Americans. And, uh, and there, you know, there were actually a lot of uh, veterans of the Civil War, um, you know, that went on to fight uh, for the United States government again, right. you know, in the like Indian in this, Wars or the Spanish in the Spanish Civil, Civil War and uh, or in the, not the Spanish Civil War, excuse me, uh, in the Spanish American War. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there may have been some <laughs> rebels old enough to have volunteered for the Spanish Civil War, but I doubt it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, again, it's a very like I said that it just seems it gets lost in uh, the the nuances of all of this. This sort of uh, get lost by the more uh, things uh, or want to do by the more uh, vociferous voices on uh, on each side. But um, on this theme a little bit, let's uh, talk about, you mentioned uh, before we started about, or maybe after we started about, uh, you know, having to update the book continually uh, <laughs> because of uh, current events. And um, so let's talk about uh, Alan Gelzo's uh, essay, on the controversy of Robert E. Lee's gravesite um, at Washington and Lee University, and the fact that Washington and Lee University is named Washington and Lee at University because of Robert E. Lee. Um, so, what's what's the latest? What's going on there at the at the school? I remember I had a conversation about this with uh, Lucas Morrell um, <laughs> a few years ago when he was on. Uh, because I think I, uh, yeah, he's, um, he works for Washington University. He's the chair of the politics department, Washington Lee. Um, yeah, go ahead. So just tell us what's going on there with this whole situation. Yeah, so Lee Chapel is where Lee is buried. And for many years, there was Confederate symbolism all over the, the area where he's buried. And about 10 or so years ago, actually, a former student of mine who went to law school there became part of a movement to get the Confederate symbolism, the Confederate flags removed. So in the book, we have a photograph from the 1930s that shows the Confederate flags. And we have a modern photograph that shows without. They have begun removing some of the official university events that used to be held at the chapel, and now they're holding them in other places. And then about two weeks ago or so, it was in the news that they are taking out the plaques that commemorate Lee's horse, Traveler. So Traveler is buried right outside of Lee Chapel. And in the book, we have a photograph of the plaque that is where he's buried. And People often leave apples and put coins on his... Come on, poor traveler. I mean, he's a horse. He didn't know about slavery right. and states' rights and secession and, you know, constitutional issues. He was just, you know, so my son, doing doing what he did. It seemed like everybody liked Traveler, you know, who met him. Right. Um, so, famous horse. Well, his, I, I, there were, I believe there were two plaques on campus about him, and I think they're both gone or both will be gone soon. Mm-hmm. And then, um, are they aren't they going to are they going to rename the chapel or I've take Lee's that. name off the chapel? Okay. Yeah, I I and don't then... think they've done that yet. I mean, the problem they run into, and Lucas may have talk, talked about this when he was on the show. I'm not sure. Um, 
you know, the problem they run into is that the faculty and the student body would like to get rid of Lee's name entirely. Sure. And the faculty had a vote, and I think they voted like 80% to get rid of Lee's name. But That's the problem surprising. is you've got a donor base <laughs> who is going to stop giving money to the school if they change the name of the school because they say, well, we went to Washington and Lee University, so we, we don't want the name of our school changed. And so I, I think that the administration is in a very difficult position where they've got two different constituencies who want very different things. And I think eventually the name will change probably at some point, but I, I think it's a long way off. I mean, the school very clearly said we're not doing that a year or two yeah. ago, but they are doing things like getting rid of Traveler's name, which again, I, I kind of see as a, I, I don't know. I, it's a horse. It's, it's a, horse. a horse. Yeah. 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 He had no moral agency. Um, but yeah, I it's the the Washington Elite thing is again that's something I'm. Because uh, Lee was a man that was more than his uh, military service for the Confederacy. I mean, uh, the university as its. Uh, well, it wasn't even a university at the time. It was just a college. College, yeah. Um, you know, would not exist in its uh, – may not exist at all if, you know, Robert E. Lee hadn't taken uh, the head of that Right. Uh, they were in a school. trouble. And one of the funny things in the that doesn't come out too much in the book, although it's here. So we've got this chapter on Lee, and then we have Ron White's chapter on Chamberlain. You know, mm -hmm. both of them Civil War generals, both of them post-war college presidents – and Lee had been a career military man who, when he got to Washington College, he recognized that he couldn't run the college like an army. And he ended up being a very good college president. Chamberlain, mm -hmm. on the other hand, had been a, a pre-war college professor, comes to prominence as a, as a general. And when he returns to Bowdoin College, he tries to run Bowdoin College as a military academy. <laughs> And he had to deal with mutinies. The students were were furious. The parents were angry at him. And he was a disaster as a college president. And it's so interesting to think about these two guys from very different backgrounds who had different understandings of what higher education should look like. And Lee was the better of the two in that regard. <laughs> yeah, and he actually uh, sort of democratized the, uh, the um, curriculum at Washington right. Lee is that we're going to get away from this, uh, you know, the class, sort of the classical curriculum. Uh, we're going to institute things that are going to help uh, these southern boys, um, you right. know, manage to live a fulfilling life, um, you know, after this war. Uh, so we're going to introduce uh, you know, agriculture and uh, engineering and, uh, you know, uh, that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, and we're going to get away from, you know, Latin and, and Greek and, uh, you know, uh, all that rhetoric and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I, I just, I, it's weird to me. I don't, I just, I really don't get it. Like if you're, if you're that upset or if you find the idea of working or, or matriculating to, a university named after this man in part why would you go there in the first place or work there in the first place you know what i mean like i, I granted i know well the work there by. is easy i can tell you that wnl <laughs> professors do okay they do better <laughs> yeah. than i do in a state school 
Right. So, but I mean, it's just like, I like, oh yeah, we need to change this name because Lee sucked and, you know, uh, slave owner, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, you don't have any problem casting the check with his name on it. I mean, so you, Lucas you have... Morell, who is black, I should point out for yeah, people who don't right, know right. him. He wrote an op-ed in the Richmond Times Dispatch during this debate a couple of years ago. And my recollect, it's been a couple of years since I read it, but my recollection was his argument was, look, Lee is commemorated in this university because he saved the school. Like right. he was a good college president and he sh- like he should be remembered for that. And I mean, that was that was his argument, as I recollect. Yeah. Anyway, all right, let's get off of the the, <laughs> uh, the Confederate topic uh, for a bit. Um, so, yeah, you have some, some interesting. Uh, oh, we've actually gone pretty long already. Wow. Um, I told you I would get you out here quick because it's Labor Day, but I guess I lied. That's OK. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh, you were mentioned, uh, or I guess we'll, we'll stick on the topic of the Confederates for a bit, because I just remembered this. You mentioned personally in uh, Edward Ayers' mm-hmm. essay about the, the contrasting graves of, uh, of two of his ancestors, uh, James Rowland and Ansel Randolph. Uh, so that was actually pretty interesting how he, <laughs> how he worked you into that, uh, into that narrative. Yeah, so Ed Ayers, who... For those who don't know, he is the president emeritus of the University of Richmond, very eminent Civil War and Reconstruction scholar. And I asked him if he would write an essay. And I had originally, you know, I to get someone like a big name like that, I wanted to make it as easy as possible. And I said, you know, if there's something you've written about before and you just want to, you know, draw from that, that would be great. And he said, well, actually, you know, I have these these Confederate ancestors who I'd be interested in writing about. And so we went that route. And initially his essay was going to be about, you know, trying to track down where this one was buried because he didn't know. And I said, that'd be great. I love it because, you know, there's a parallel there between Mm -hmm. these people from the 1860s who had to track down their loved ones. And he was going to do the same many years later. So we agreed on that. And then I decided I'm just going to hop on Ancestry.com and see if I can give him a lead. And what do you know, within 10 minutes or so, I find his ancestor. And so I email him like, well, I've ruined the story now because I found him. And um, but then Ed kept digging and he ended up writing about these two people, the one who was buried in Richmond. And that's the grave I found. But then I also we also found that there's still there's a headstone for this man back in North Carolina where he was from originally. Again, they the family couldn't get his body back, but they wanted to commemorate him in their churchyard. And so I had the you know, the, someone from the church take a picture and we used it in the book. And then Ed also wrote about his family cemetery on his grandfather's land back in this rural community in North Carolina. And very sadly, and Ed writes about this, his cousin wouldn't let us take a photograph of that cemetery because his cousin, with all this Confederate stuff going on in the media, was worried people might come and try to vandalize it or something. And so mm. we couldn't get a photo of that little churchyard or that little family plot on a on a family farm that I really wanted to get. But we do we tell that story or Ed tells that story and then tells the story of finding Ansel Randolph and his burial in Richmond and then this other stone back in North Carolina. And I, it was kind of fun to be a part of that search with him. Yeah. Yeah. That was really neat. And, uh, <clears throat> actually I guess we'll do one more on the Confederates. Um, cause 
uh, this one was the wildest one to me that <clears throat> that there is a, excuse me there is a uh, a section of a cemetery in Brazil mm-hmm. that is filled with uh, <laughs> Confederate veterans who uh, you know after the war uh, basically just you know left the South and and uh, immigrated to a new country and uh, you know gave it a go there. Um, <laughs> and uh, so tell us about this this uh, this cemetery in Brazil. Yeah, so you know Brazil is a slaveholding country past the United States. I forget what year they abolished it. They didn't abolish the slave trade till 1850. It was like they- yeah, they didn't. I think it was like 1886 or something like that. Yeah, it's very time, late. Yeah. And so after the war, these diehard Confederates leave the South and they move to Brazil. And there's this small, well, actually, I don't know how big it is, but there's a cemetery in Brazil that is um, that documents and, and commemorates their dead. Jimmy Carter visited in the 1970s when he was governor of Georgia before he became president. We have got a photo of Jimmy Carter visiting in the book. And, uh, you know, again, we mentioned a while back about how the stories are constantly changing. So this was an essay that we changed at the very last minute because every year they have a festival to celebrate the Confederacy at this cemetery. But in the wake of Charlottesville in 2017, Confederate, uh, sorry, Brazilian authorities have begun to say you can't you can't do this anymore because it, it commemorates hate. And so now this year, this was a change we made at the very last minute in the book. We talked about how this year they last year when they had the thing, I think there were protesters at it. And this year they shut it down. They didn't have this Confederate festival so these cemeteries are very real places where the memory of the Civil War is being debated and fought over, even as far away as Brazil. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. And um, all right. So moving on from from the rebels, uh, well, the book itself, uh, I should mention, it's it's broken down into uh, three parts. So you have, you know, the first section of the book is on uh, grave sites uh, for common soldiers and sailors. And then the second is the part is the one with the, <laughs> the one on generals and their, you know, their horses and stuff, you know, like uh, traveler or, or uh, uh, George Meade's horse, uh, old Baldy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the third section is about uh, civilians who had uh, uh, died uh, during the war uh or were murdered in one case uh, during the war uh i i don't know for some reason i found that section of the book like maybe even the most intriguing Hmm. um because those are stories um you don't really uh hear about as much just because they're you know they don't take place uh in the field of battle that sort of thing but uh you know the the essay on um uh i think it was walter Starr's essay actually on edwin stanton's uh, infant son Jamie, uh, who died, I think 1862, yep. uh, eight months old, um, and uh, his uh, gravesite, and then uh, uh, the murder of uh, 
Samuel Calvin Lamar by Samuel Webster, that story, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, the, the, the whole, the whole mess with John Wilkes Booth, who is, you know, granted very famous for, you know, his infamous act. But, um, yeah, I, I thought that section of the book was very, uh, very, very intriguing just because, um, uh, it shows you a different side of, uh, of the war itself or, or the time period itself. And there's a lot of stuff that you just, you know, you don't really, um, see that often, uh, you know, discussed in, in works on, on the war and, or, or the time period, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, with those, so we've got two children who die. So we have Jamie Stanton, the son of Lincoln's secretary of war. And then we have, uh, Joe Davis, Joseph Davis, who was the son of Jefferson mm-hmm. Davis. And when he was about four, I think, or six, he fell off a porch at the Confederate white house and died. And so these two children are commemorated in very different ways. The, the, the Confederate children of Richmond raise money to pay for a headstone of, for Joseph Davis, whereas Jamie Stanton is commemorated just with very small little stones that have his, I think, his initials and his age on them. And then he's also mm-hmm. mentioned on his father's headstone. Edwin Stanton died a few years later in 1869. But then we've got, you know, a slave cemetery at the University of Alabama or the, mm-hmm. the, the one you mentioned about the murder in Western Maryland. That one was written by Dana Schof, who's the editor of Civil War Times. And he just, you know, he found, I think, in an online auction, some papers for sale that he bought. And as he went through them, he found this story of this murder. And in the process, then he went and found where the guy was buried and it's an abandoned cemetery that's completely overgrown in the woods on the edge of a cornfield in Western Maryland. And again, every, every burial that we describe is different. And so he tells the story of finding the murder and then finding the grave and kind of how it unpacked for him with John Wilkes Booth. He's got an unmarked grave in Baltimore and there are, were a lot of conspiracy theorists who believe that Booth wasn't really killed in July or sorry, in uh, April of 65 and that it was someone else who was buried there. And so he's there, down in Argentina with Hitler. Yeah, there have been court <laughs> battles over, you know, what do you do? Can we dig him up and do, you know, DNA testing on him to see if it's if it's really him? And the other aspect of his is he's got an unmarked grave. And there's a headstone for his sister in the family plot, and then she has a footstone without any writing on it. And so a lot of people think that that footstone is where he's buried and that because it was his name, they couldn't put his name on it, kind of like Benedict Arnold, and that he just Mm -hmm. has this little stone without any writing. In reality, he doesn't have any stone. It's just his people think his sister's footstone is his. And so people go and put pennies on that stone face down, like he's got to stare at Lincoln's face for the rest of eternity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, all of these are just so fascinating stories. And in that case, Terry Alford, who wrote that essay, he has testified in these trials about, you know, can we exhume Booth's body or was it really him and all this stuff. So he is an expert who's written a biography on Booth, who then was able to take that personal uh, connection to the story and bring it into a really fascinating essay on Booth's grave. Yeah, I always uh, going back to uh, Joseph Davis or Jefferson Davis losing his son, and uh, Lincoln lost his uh, Tad. I think it was Willie. Right? Uh, oh, was it Willie? Willie. Yeah. 
um, right around uh, within a few months of each other, I believe, or within the same year. Yeah, it was February 1862 that Lincoln lost Willie. And then uh, Stanton's son is a few months later in July, and I forget what month uh, Jefferson Davis's son died, but it's same around, right around the same time. Yeah, I've always wondered what... Um, Although it was not uncommon back then to lose a child um, young. Um, but I always wondered what Lincoln and Davis thought privately or said privately about the loss of the other's child, um, you know, or or, uh, or whether, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Just uh, Just what went through their heads. Uh, if there is any sort of, um, I don't know of Lincoln commenting on Davis. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, and that's... I don't, I wouldn't know of Davis because I just haven't looked into that. But I, I've read a lot about Lincoln. I've never seen anything about him commenting on that. Right. Yeah. Neither have I. That's what I'm thinking. But I'm sure, you know, um, it both. I mean, it had to cross the mind of both that, like, here we are, you know, presidents of. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or respective countries or, uh, you know, not, you know, not that Lincoln thought right. uh, that, that, was, <laughs> that they had a separate country. But uh, but and then we both lost sons and, you know, tragic in uh, in Lincoln's case to illness. And then in Davis's case, a, you know, a tragic accident. I, I, I just always wondered whether they had uh, ruminated on that mm. or um, if there was any sort of like secret private correspondence between the two, you know, offering condolences or something, which has never been found, but, uh, would have been interesting if something like that would have happened. But, um, yeah, I've always, uh, I always thought that parallel was very, um, uh, interesting to think of, um, or just the placing yourself in the shoes of, of, you know, as a parent and then as, <laughs> as a sort of, as, uh, as foes and if there was any sort of uh um prayer or sympathy or uh towards the other person because i know we i mean davis really hated lincoln a lot <laughs> <laughs> uh pretty obvious um i think lincoln was probably more or less just ambivalent about davis uh we know we wanted him just to you know, at the end of the war he wanted davis to just Go away. Yeah. Go away, right. Yeah, just find himself out of the country and stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't have to deal with him. But uh, yeah, I always wondered about uh, that that time period between the two and, uh, you know, what effect that had on both of them and how they saw each other and felt about each other and that sort of thing. But something we'll never be able to know because, like I said, nothing, unless we find something, uh, there's nothing in the yeah. historical record that exists about, uh, you know, their thoughts or actions or anything like that. Yeah. But anyway. But, uh, all right, well, like I said, I think I've kept you long enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've discussed uh, a lot of the book. Didn't get to a lot of things. Um, I thought that uh, Anna Gibson Holloway, uh, the one on the finding the, the USS Monitor, uh, finding the wreckage of that ship, and then, uh, and then, you know, stumbling upon the remains of two of its crew, and then that whole story, I thought that was very, very interesting. But uh, we'll leave that for you guys to read at home. Uh, and then also the um, um, uh, the hanging monument in Mankato in Minnesota, mm-hmm. with the uh, for the thirty nine 
uh, Sioux uh, braves or warriors or men or whatever that uh, you know were hanged there for their part in the the uprising that took part there in 1862, and then uh, the fact that there was a uh, monument, <laughs> yeah, you know, wrecked in that spot, and that was eventually moved and then disappeared, and that whole story was very uh, fascinating as well. But again, we'll leave that one for the uh, for you guys to read at home. But uh, but you know, uh, before we go, the exit question, which you've answered like three times now already, but uh, I'll, I'll ask you again for this book, and you know, that is, uh, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? You know, what would you what would you want? or the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it? You know, I think that having readers encounter these stories, which I think for most readers will be new. I mean, even where we have famous monuments, like the only super famous one that we include is Ulysses S. Grant. We don't Mm -hmm. include Lincoln's tomb or some of the other really famous ones. But even with Grant's tomb, Grant is not the focus. We talk about one of the men who did the fundraising for Grant's tomb and his story and then how he was commemorated recently with a statue at at the University of South Carolina where he taught. I think that each of these stories is just so poignant and so powerful and so engaging. I've never done a book like this before, and I'm so pleased with how it all came together because I think they enable modern readers to connect with these historical figures in a different kind of way and in a more personal way. And honestly, one of my hopes is that this book will get assigned in college classes because I think that younger people will be able to connect with them and be able to see new and different ways about thinking about history and thinking about the Civil War through these mm-hmm. personal reflections by these really wonderful historians. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a fascinating book. I, I always really enjoyed essay collections. Uh, they're like my probably my maybe my favorite thing to read. Mm. Um, I, I've always liked having like a, you know, a variety of different people discussing uh, uh, one topic from, you know, different aspects or, you know, uh, from different angles, that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's also um, a, well, we should, uh, we've mentioned some of the, uh, uh, some of the authors, but uh, I mean, you, you got like a murderer's row here of, uh, of civil war scholars. I mean, we talked about Alan Gelzo and, uh, uh, Carolyn Janney and uh, uh, did we mention William Davis? No, yeah, William C. Davis, who is one of the most famous Civil War historians alive, wrote about a Confederate general and his wife who loved each other dearly and wished the war wasn't getting in the way of their love. Yeah, yeah, uh, Walter Starr. I mean, I'm trying to think who else off the top of my head. It was, uh, Ronald White, Michael Burlingame. Michael Burlingame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, tons and tons of people. So if you if you're into the if you're into reading about the Civil War, you're going to recognize uh, a lot of these names, if not most of these names. So, um, like I said, it's a it's a, a very strong lineup of essays, and then the book itself is just. Uh, uh, as you mentioned, it's a very uh, handsome book. It's, the illustrations are fantastic. Uh, the pictures, um, you know, accompanying all the essays. Uh, um, it's a it's a really really uh, great little book. And uh, yeah, I hope you're right. I hope it does 
get onto some uh, curriculum in colleges because uh, I think it would be, especially for young people who, um, you know, from my experience, don't seem to ruminate on death that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just a, uh, you know, it's not just something they uh, really uh, tend to think about, and for you know good reason uh, because they're young. And, yeah. uh, uh, but uh, I think it's important. Um, for them to do so and just to uh at, in any way that you can uh really widen the scope and contextualize that time period and uh bring something fresh to it and uh to get people uh especially young people to to think about it in a new way that they haven't before i think is very important i think and I think uh, this book will do that. So I'm uh, very, very uh, happy that you had this uh, this little breakfast uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> this little breakfast idea turn into you know uh, many years ago turning into this uh, finished product. I think it's great. Yeah, thank you. Oh no problem. Um, so oh yeah, before we go, anything I almost forgot. I think I didn't ask you this last time, and I was really mad at myself. Uh, but uh, you know, anything you want to uh, else out there you want to plug the other new book or uh, uh, social media any uh, stuff like that you want to let people know about yeah I mean I'm on Twitter at Civil War John and it's just J-O-N no H in the John um, and in April I'm publishing a children's book about Lincoln and so I'm very excited about that one it'll be an yeah, great book and I'd love to send you a copy and come talk about it yeah, absolutely. Definitely coming back, and uh, I'll and that'll uh, explain my could... lead against brands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll uh, maintain pole position. Yeah. Uh, in into 2024, but yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to that one because I can't wait to, uh, you know, read it to my son because he'll be. Oh, it's coming out in April, so April. yeah, he'll be. Yep. He'll just turn four. He turns four in in uh, February, so uh, looking forward to that one. But yeah, this book. Uh, the one we talked about today, Final Resting Places, Reflections on the Meaning of Civil War Graves, uh, just published a few days ago by uh, University of Georgia, uh, Boo, uh, University of Georgia Press. Uh, okay, as we mentioned before, fantastic, uh, fantastic, very handsome book. If you're a Civil War uh, scholar, uh, armchair scholar, you're going to love it. Um, if you have any passing interest in the book, uh, it's recommended uh or in that era, it's recommended to those people as well. Um, yeah, just uh, fantastic, fantastic work, as always done uh, by uh, by Dr. White. And uh, so, uh, so Dr. White, yes, uh, thank you so much for coming on again and talking about the book with me. And then again, thank you for uh, you know putting this book together. All the you know uh, blood, toil, tears, and sweat uh, that went into it. Uh, you know, we, uh, I appreciate uh, uh, you guys. Uh, getting this done yeah well thank you no problem and again if you like this podcast please leave us a five-star review and share with your friends and if you uh, have books you'd like to discuss with us on the podcast or if you have any uh, uh, questions or comments or any books you want to see you know uh, reviewed on the podcast or talked about on the podcast uh, please feel free to reach out to me at uh, tbenson and heartland.org that's a t-b-e-n-s-o-n at heartland.org and for more information about the heartland institute you can just go to uh regular old heartland.org uh there and then we also again uh or we also as well have our own little uh twitter page for the podcast 
you can reach out to us there. If, if, again, if you have any questions or comments or anything like that, feel free to give us a follow. It's uh, at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So uh, make sure you do that. Or actually, we can't even call it Twitter anymore, right? we got to call it X. Right. It's not Twitter, it's X. Uh, so follow us on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. The, the webpage formerly known as Twitter. So follow us there at, at illbooks. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, we'll see you guys next time. Uh, be safe out there. Take care. Hope you're enjoying your... We're recording this on a holiday weekend, but uh, probably won't be out to you on a holiday weekend. But uh, just in case, wherever you are, uh, stay safe, enjoy yourself, and we'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. What is one kind of favor I ask of you? What is one kind of favor I ask of you? Lord, is one kind of favor I ask of you? Please ask. It's a long lane, got no end. It's a long lane and got no end. It's a long lane, ain't got no end. Then it's a bad wind that never changed. All it do. Well, it's you, my horse, it's been a lie. Well, it takes me to my parents' ground. My heart stopped beating and my hands got cold. My heart stopped beating and my hands got cold. Well, my heart stopped beating, Lord, my hands it was no Have you ever a coffin down? Have you ever heard a coffin down? Have you ever heard a coffin down? Then you know what the poor boy is in the ground. Well, dig my grave with a silver spade. You may leave me down with a golden chain. Have you ever heard a church bell song? Have you ever heard a church bell song? Have you ever heard a church bell song? Then you know that the poor boy didn't go.